You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Well, welcome to part six of our series, The End from the Beginning. We're going to look at our text verse, which is Isaiah 46, 9, and 10. And very often I'll read these from uh, 26 translations, which I believe I can... Actually, when you do 26 translations, you can get two or three different translations, and and uh, you, you get the best parts of the verses. I think it explains it the best. Remember you, the things named in advance from age past times. For I am the mighty one. There is none else. The adorable, and there is none like me. God is saying that nobody knows the future like I know the future. Satan himself cannot predict the future. There are some things he has an idea about, but he's a miserable and has a miserable track record at predicting the future. Making clear from the first what is to come, and from past times the things which have not so far come about. I say that my plan shall stand, I accomplish my every purpose. God has purposes in the earth, and He works them even when we are not aware of them. Now, that doesn't mean He's controlling every decision. That doesn't mean He's behind everything that happens. There are a number of things that happen every day that do not come from God. They're not His plan. They're not His will. But when you surrender to His will and learn His will by reading His will, and walking in obedience to what you see in the written word, you begin to experience more of God's own government in your life, and you have a covering or a canopy over you to protect you in many, many ways from the things that would come on the earth. Now, chapter 3 of Genesis is our next sequence that we'll learn from. It's only one chapter. We read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which are the paradise sequence. They are reflected in Revelation 21 and 22. Now we come to Genesis 3, and we see reflections of Genesis 3 all through the book of Revelation. In the end, uh, 19 and 20, we see reflections there uh, earlier, and we'll get into that in this lesson but Genesis 3 is all about the fall of the first Adam, Adam. Uh, the, in fact, the name man in Hebrew is Adam. And so there was the first Adam, the first Adam, and he was followed by a second Adam who came thousands of years later. But the fall of the first Adam happened because of a deceiver who came to take or to seize or usurp his authority. Now, the reach of Adam's fall is far greater than what most of us have imagined. It wasn't just that he fell into sin. He brought death into the earth. What he actually did was commit the sin of high treason. And here's why we say that. There are many sins that we fall into because we've been deceived. We've been lied to. 
Eve was deceived according to the scriptures. Adam was not. He knew what he was doing. That's why the world fell into sin when Adam sinned, because he made a conscious decision to switch his allegiance from God, who had come to walk with him in the garden, who'd given him all of this wonderful paradise and this dominion and authority, and he switched it over to another being. Why would he do that? Well, he obviously thought that he had something to gain. I don't think he did it because he wanted to lose. I think he could see that he was going to gain by shifting allegiance to this new being who comes to introduce him. I have a very difficult time believing that he was willing to throw it all away on the word of a snake. I think that there was a literal snake, but I think that there was also another being working through that snake that they could see and be affected by. And so the reach of Adam's fall was just incredible because of who he yielded to. Now, the authority of Adam was lost in Genesis 3, but it's fully regained in the book of Revelation due to the crushing defeat of Satan at the cross. Now, Satan has been defeated, but the defeat has not been fully enforced. There must be some reason for that. We'll see if this sequence gives us an explanation. But this lesson is devoted to the restoration of Adam's dominion through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, Satan himself, I believe, came to tempt Eve and Adam into sin and death. Genesis 3.1, New King James Version. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, I believe that the scriptures are using here symbolic language to describe Satan himself rather than an ordinary serpent. One of the things that is so important to understand is the use of idioms, figures of speech, all through the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew language was filled with illustrations, allegories, symbols. Our God is a rock. That doesn't mean that you would look on the throne in heaven and see a big rock sitting there. It doesn't mean that at all. It just is a picture of his uh, dependability, his faithfulness, his uh, unchanging nature. So that's what we learn from these Hebrew idioms. I believe there's a Hebrew idiom being used here when we read about Satan being a serpent. The word for serpent is nakash, which is translated shining one as well as serpent. Now, there's a root word that's associated with it that's translated copper or brass. And it is because the serpent has a shining exterior. Of all the animals in creation, he's not like an animal with fur. He's got a shininess about him. Revelation describes the devil in this way. So the great dragon was cast out, Revelation 12, 9. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, the dragon is a symbol of Satan. So Satan is a being 
who doesn't look like a dragon. He has the characteristics of a dragon. When the scripture warns us about wolves in sheep's clothing, that doesn't mean that the people who fit that uh, definition literally look like wolves. It means that they have the character traits of a wolf. They care nothing for sheep. They are out to devour, to hurt, to steal and kill. And so they're not literal wolves. But yet when the scriptures use this language, sometimes we believe that it's, it's, it's speaking very literally. And I believe God is using Hebrew the way that he always does. He's using it as a colorful way to describe uh, the things he wants us to get across. So I think serpent is a symbol, a very clever symbol of what the devil is really about. Uh, Jesus called Herod a fox, but that doesn't mean Herod was a literal fox. Uh, the, Jacob called his own son Dan an adder, but that doesn't mean that Dan was a literal snake. He said that Judah was a lion's whelp. Well, he's full of kings. That's what it means, that loads of kings will come out of the tribe of Judah. Uh, that doesn't mean that Judah was a literal lion. So we see the symbolism is used throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and I believe we're seeing the same thing here in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Now listen to what Paul says about the serpent in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3, and then also 14. He said, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Meaning that there were all kinds of false teachings that permeated the early church. And he said, it's the serpent or Satan who's behind all of this. And he describes the false ministers in verse 13. And he, and he describes their inspiration in verse 14. And no wonder, he says, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I believe that the Nakash of Genesis 3 was an angel of light, none other than Satan himself. Now, the Hebrew word for beast, Satan was, uh, the serpent was more cunning or subtle than any beast of the field. It's kai, and it means living being. It can be translated as beast, but it's also translated as living being. So Genesis 3.1 could literally read like this. Then Akash, the shining one, was the wisest living being that God ever created. I don't think that Eve was deceived by an ordinary talking snake, but by this clever, shining being. Now, it is instinctive, or I'm sorry, instructive for us to read the account of Ezekiel, found in chapter 28. And it's Ezekiel's description of the king of Tyre, who cannot be a man. There's a prince of Tyre in this chapter who is a man. But there is also a king who is operating behind him. It's this shadow kingdom. In other words, there's a literal kingdom on the earth ruled by the prince of Tyre, but behind it in the heavenlies, there is this supernatural kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that you can't see. Now, now I believe that Satan has moved his throne all over the earth, and he puts it in different places. 
in order to rule and influence man in ways that bring destruction on planet Earth. And that's what's happening here. And at the time, the most threatening empire to Israel or the most threatening city-state would be the city of Tyre. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Ezekiel 28 11, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord of God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. That's not a man. This is speaking of Lucifer, who was created by God and placed in Eden. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now we know from Isaiah 14 that that iniquity was pride and he uh, determined to revolt against God and he said, I'll exalt my throne above the throne of God. Now, let's take a look at these descriptions. Number one, he's full of wisdom. Sounds like Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Or, the Nakash was the wisest living being God ever created. So, there we see it in, in Ezekiel 28.12. Perfect in beauty. He was not only wise, but he was something to look at, impressive to look at. He would have been awe-inspiring to Eve there in the garden. He was created, so he was not a human. Uh, he is a spiritual being, and he moves back and forth in the earth. Uh, that's what the Scripture says. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. In other words, he actually stepped into the altars. And that's one of the things that you see angels doing from time to time in the Scriptures. They would step into an altar and, and ascend to heaven in the middle of the flame. Uh, he was the guardian angel of Eden. Uh, verse 14 says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, remember this. When God put two cherubim in Eden to keep the way of the tree of life at either entrance, they were there with swords. Uh, a cherub is an authoritative angel, an awe-inspiring angel. I think some air, uh, angels look exactly like men because they can be mistaken as men. Some have wings, some don't. Uh, but this being was, was exceptional. And apparently he was powerful and mighty. Not even the angel Michael spoke down to him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So he seems to have been of the highest rank and order. And so that's who it was that would have come to tempt uh, uh, Eve and then ultimately Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now listen to what God says to him in chapter uh, uh 28 of Ezekiel, verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. 
Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground and laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And uh, again, Isaiah talks about the same thing. This is total and abject humiliation. Uh, in Genesis 3, we read about the serpent being cursed like an animal uh, to crawl on the dust of the ground. But here it is literally uh, Satan being totally humiliated. So I believe that we've got a Hebrew idiom in uh, Genesis 3. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I will turn you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever." It apparently is that Satan is consumed continually by a fire that burns within him. And that's why he's so restless and miserable and constantly moving. It's because he is a miserable, miserable creature. Beautiful, very wise, but also not in a place of peace. Now, this is God's description of him, and he is being shown as a very highly, uh, 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 a highly exalted angel, one of great rank with great wisdom and very beautiful to look at. So God has already judged and uh, sentenced him here in Ezekiel, as if God's already done it. Now, God hasn't actually carried it all out yet, but it's coming. On your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. That's what's said to the serpent. Now, now here's uh, another thing, Genesis 3.15. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and, and uh, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Again, it is symbolic language. At the cross, Jesus did not literally step on the head of Satan. But when he died... He did something to the kingdom of darkness that in symbolism was stepping on the head. He took away its power. So I would say to you as you read Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent is cursed, when a temptation of such magnitude goes down and when the consequences are so horrible does God respond to it simply by cursing a reptile? And I would say the answer is no. The curse is leveled at Satan. Now, here's where the reptile comes in. Because the snake is symbolic of him, and because death is going to come into the earth, and the animal kingdom is going to be completely messed up, and now we're going to see animals eating each other, and we're going to see enmity between them. It's going to be totally different. When this happens, it's inevitable that the snake which crawls on the ground is now going to be stepped on, whereas before animals may have honored him, but now they're not going to do it. They're going to do everything they can uh, to step on him. David says this, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaveth unto the earth. That's Psalm 44, 25. That's very similar to what it says about the snake. Now, does that mean that David, when he was going through a tough time, actually got down on the ground and ate dirt? And that answer is no. But he was 
completely humiliated. And he said, our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly cleaves to the earth. Uh, it's a description of abject humiliation, loss of honor. And that's what happens to Satan. So we see here in this sequence, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, where the devil comes into the Garden of Eden, and I believe he was the covering cherub. It was his responsibility spiritually to aid and assist Adam. And instead of aiding and assisting Adam, he used his influence, his beauty, and his wisdom to lay a snare before Adam, to tempt Adam, and Adam and Eve fell into this temptation. That's why there is redemption for people, but not for fallen angels and not for Satan. Satan rebelled against God without temptation. He rebelled against God uh, because he wanted to be God. He sought to replace God. And so uh, that's why God forgives man and sent a substitute for man because man was lied to. Man was deceived. He had promises made to him which were total lies. Satan rebelled against God with no one tempting him. So that's why there is no redemption for the angels who fell and sinned against God. That's our time for this sequence, but we're not done. I'll be back in just a little bit. Well, we're talking here primarily from Genesis 3 about the lost dominion that God gave to Adam. He turned and lost it to Satan, who became the god of this world. Actually, uh, God didn't give the earth to Adam. Uh, God has always held the earth. Uh, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So, uh, in fact, God doesn't have the right to judge the earth, but doesn't own the earth. It is his ownership of, of the earth and everything in it, man, that gives God the right to judge because he is the owner. He's the rightful owner. He's the one who created it. He has the right to judge it because he created it. When people say, uh, God is not my judge, and they write all of that off, they're basically saying, I own myself. But you are not your own. You're bought with a price, is what we're told in the New Testament. So we have a responsibility. That's why even our money belongs to God. We're stewards of our money. It's not ours. It's, it's his. And so we have a responsibility to manage it with his direction. Uh, God gave Adam a lease on the earth, but he didn't make him the owner. And that's what we see. We see a lease. And so this lease had with it rights and privileges and so forth. Uh, Adam surrendered this lease or this dominion to another being. And here we see in Luke chapter 4 and verse 6, at the temptation of Jesus, the devil is tempting Jesus. And he said, all this authority, because he had shown Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he said, all of this authority, I will de deliver to you. I'll give this to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, the Scripture says Jesus was tempted with that. If that was a bald-faced lie, I mean, it would be like, you know, one of my kids coming to me and saying, Dad, I'll give you a million dollars if you do this, that, or the other. Well, 
I love my kids, but I know they don't have a million dollars. That's not even a temptation for me. Uh, do you see what I mean? In order for this to be a valid temptation, the offer has to have some substance to it. And Satan did have that kind of dominion. Who made him that way? Who gave him that lease or that dominion? Well, it came because of the sin of Adam. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And so people who don't believe are blinded by the God of this age. Uh, King James says the God of this world. It means uh, world system. It's uh, the Greek cosmos. And so he has blinded people. Ephesians 2.2, 2, you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's why you can't be saved just by reforming your behavior. You can't be saved by good works because you're under the control of a spirit you can't even see who dominates your way. His lordship over you has to be broken. For this reason, Pharaoh had to be dealt with before the children of Israel could be free. They had to cross the Red Sea, and Pharaoh had to be judged at the Red Sea. His power was taken away. Now, the whole of creation was under Adam's influence in the beginning, but it fell under the influence of Satan. This is Romans 8, 19 through 23, and I'm reading from 26 translations. For creation waits expectantly for God's sons to be made known or to be revealed, meaning that we're still hidden. What we are has not fully come to light. For creation was made subject to imperfection, not by its own choice, but because of him who made it so. Yet always there was hope. Now, people wonder why was God so harsh letting the world be controlled by darkness when one man sinned. It is because God wanted to redeem it all with one man's obedience. And so if, if the world is judged and turned to darkness by loads and loads of people turning and turning and turning, then it takes loads of saviors to get them back right. But it only took one savior because it only took one man to turn it into darkness. Uh, for creation was made subject to imperfection, not by its own choice, but because of him who made it so. One man made it like that. Yet always there was hope. Because the universe itself will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and shall gain the freedom of the sons of God when they are glorified. In other words, our glorified bodies and the redemption of the earth are tied together because our bodies do come from the earth. Up to the present, we know the whole created universe groans in all its parts as if in the pangs of childbirth. You remember in, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about all the sorrows. This is the beginning of sorrows, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and, and earthquakes in different places and famines and all of this stuff. He said, those are birth pangs. This is the earth groaning, saying, I want to be freed from this. The earth itself is kicking against this horrible dominion. All right. Now the Bible says, 
that we ourselves are groaning inwardly while we eagerly await our full adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Even though we have the peace of God, we're born again, we have God's wonderful love, hope, and faith in our spirits, we have been entitled to develop the fruit of the Spirit in us according to Galatians. Even though we have all that, there are still times when we sense it's not right and it's never more clear than at a funeral and especially at the funeral of someone who dies before their time that's when it's especially revealing we know this isn't right we shouldn't have to say goodbye like this this isn't god's plan we recoil at that and that's why death is so revolting for this reason then a second adam had to redeem not only mankind but the whole planet. Romans 5.14, 26 translations. Now Adam is a type of him who was to come. In other words, if there was an Adam in the beginning, there's got to be an Adam at the end. All right, And that's what we're seeing. So there was an Adam who fell in Genesis 3. There has to be an Adam who wins and doesn't fall in the book of Revelation and later on, in the New Testament. We have to see that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, 46, 47, 48. Adam, the first man, was made a natural living being. Man was made a living soul, is what the King James says. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Observe, the spiritual does not come first, but the physical. Now remember, in one of our earlier lessons, we said that the darkness comes before light. The evening and the morning were the first day. The dark period is first. That's what happened. The darkness came first. Then the light comes. And that's what we see. The life-giving Adam, or the last Adam, rather, became a life-giving spirit. Observe, the spiritual does not come first, but the physical. Man the first is from the earth material. Man the second or the second Adam, is from heaven. The nature of the man made of dust is repeated in all men. All of us are made of dust. The nature of the man from heaven is repeated in those who are of heaven, meaning that we are dust outwardly, but inwardly we have the Christ Spirit. He puts His Spirit in us. And that's what he did to bring us to redemption. Now, in order for the second Adam to win back the earth, he had to be tested. He had to go through a test, and he had to be tempted. And we know that he was tempted in all points like we are. And that's why we read about his temptation. And it's interesting. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You and I have never had to be led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted because we're tempted of our own lust. James chapter 1 tells us that. Every man is tempted of his own lust. Christ didn't have any lust. He was perfect. He was born of a virgin. Therefore, there was no sin in his flesh. You and I struggle with a sin nature in our flesh. It starts out in a spirit, soul, and body, but it is still in your flesh. That's why Paul said, I keep under my body. I can't let my flesh get away from me. He said, if I let my flesh get away from me when I've preached others, I become a castaway. So he said, I cannot deal or let my flesh run 
its course. I can't do that. I've got to control it. So you and I still have to battle with the dust, with the flesh. So we've got this outward nature that we got from Adam, but we've got this beautiful recreated human spirit that comes from Christ. There is a day coming when you and I are going to have a new body that is also created from Christ. Now, Jesus had to be tested. So in order to be tested, he had to be born like a natural human being. So I'm going to read to you what he says about this. And again, this is in highly symbolic language. Uh, Jesus thought in Hebrew, probably spoke and taught in Hebrew. Uh, uh, John chapter 10, verse 1, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, a lot of people would think, well, the sheepfold is heaven. No, it didn't. The sheep are in the earth. And the devil can't climb into heaven by back door. He's not getting in the back door of heaven. He has come into the sheepfold where the sheep are by coming through a way that is not the door. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. Who's the doorkeeper? The doorkeeper is God the Father. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So his purpose is to come to where the sheep are in the sheepfold and to take them to another place. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. What did he do? He said, I'm going before you the way I go. Uh, you know. He is telling his disciples, you're going to follow me. They will die and be resurrected. And that's what he did first. So he goes before him and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And by the way, the resurrection will all be done by voice. Just like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead with his voice, Lazarus come forth. So he will do this to the church. Uh, all right, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So people who are really born again, they have this inward sense. That's not right. I don't trust that spirit. They can recognize this. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So he said, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep did not hear them. Now, when I first read that, I thought, man, is he saying that the prophets were thieves and robbers? All the people who came before him to teach and preach, they're the thieves and robbers? No. He's talking about every being who came into this planet from outside this planet and entered the planet, they're thieves and robbers. And that's what Satan was. He came in as a thief and a robber. He does not have a right to be here. He broke the law by coming here. He is a usurper. He was not born here. Jesus said, I came into the earth through the womb of a woman. I got here the way you're supposed to come. Then he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So, what I want you to see is that he comes as the shepherd of the sheep and he comes into the earth through the birth canal, the way that we were supposed to come, through the womb of a woman. We came here the way we were supposed to. The dominion of earth then belongs to us. Jesus came as only the second human being since Adam, only the second one, to walk in total life, to be free from death. and Jesus had to yield to death. Death couldn't kill him. 
That's why no matter how many times they tried to murder him, how many times the storms came against him, how many times Herod tried to kill him, it didn't matter. They couldn't kill him. Death could not kill him because death had no legal right over Jesus because he was the second Adam. He had no sin. Death can only come on those who have sin. Had he not gone to the cross, he'd still be alive. He gave up his life in order to be a substitute for you and for me. Now, this is fascinating. Adam and Eve were tested and tempted in a paradise. Jesus was tested and tempted in a wilderness. They were in the presence of docile animals. In other words, no curse on the animals. Mark 1.13 says that Jesus was in the presence of wild beasts. In other words, there were animals around him that could have killed. They were tested when there was an abundance of food. He was tested when there was none. They responded to temptation by misquoting the words of God Jesus responded to temptation by accurately quoting the word, and that's why he won. So he came to earth with eternal life. He was God. But he secured authority for man, the authority that was given in Genesis 1.26, because he had to become a man. Now, I was puzzled by this when I first became a believer. Why does Jesus call himself over and over and over again the Son of Man? I mean, that's what a lot of people say. He's not the Son of God. And why does he himself call himself the Son of Man over and over and over again? He is saying, I have a right to be here. I was born of a woman. I came through the birth canal 88 times in Scripture. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. He very rarely ever said, I am the Son of God. He didn't make that claim, but not like he made the claim, Son of Man. And he did that because he wanted to say, I have a right to take up the lease that God gave in Genesis 1.26. Now listen to John 5. This is a fascinating sequence of Scripture. It's found in verse 26, 27. Listen to what he said. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son to have life in himself. In other words, Jesus, the Son, had eternal life. He came with eternal life. He's filled with eternal life. And God has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of God. Mm -mm. God has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. In other words, authority, which leads to judgment, the right to exercise judgment, belonged to the one that God gave dominion of the earth to. Adam lost that authority, and since that time the devil has been dragging people into judgment all over the earth, falsely accusing and overdoing it and so forth. But the real judgment belongs to the Son of Man. So he has come to reclaim the dominion. He won this dominion through his death and resurrection. But it is yet to be fully implemented. Now, why is that? There has to be a reason for it. If Christ 
broke the back of Satan at the cross and resurrection and defeated him, according to Hebrews 2, 13, that in death he might defeat him or destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, the word paralyzed comes into mind here when we look at that in Hebrews 2, 14. Why is Satan still running around? Why is he still stealing, killing, and destroying? He's still very active on this planet. Why? He has been stripped legally, but he's still operating. Uh, there are criminals out on the street breaking the law. Uh, they can be corralled, they can be arrested and stopped, but just because they've broken a law doesn't mean they're automatically punished. Satan is an outlaw, and that's what he's doing. So there's a reason that God has not yet dealt with him fully. There's a reason why he's not in the jail. There's a reason why he hadn't come under lock and key. And there must have been a time frame associated with that lease. That's what you read in Scripture. In the year of Jubilee, every 50th year in Israel, the land that was leased or given out to others to use reverted back to its original owner. The owners were not to sell their land. They could lease it, but they couldn't sell it. There's a reason God gave them that picture. He wanted them to see the nature of his ownership of earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24, 1. And, so, and what you see there in the Psalms is a sequence. You see the cross sequence in Psalm 22. Read it. It's all about the cross. You see our walk with God in Psalm 23. Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. That's not heaven. That's walking with God here on this earth. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's God's covenant with us while we were here in the earth in the presence of beings who wish to do us harm, but they're stopped because God has given us this covenant. And then you see the end. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It comes to an end when he reclaims it. So there must be a time frame on this lease. And you see that all through Scripture, the leases had a specified period of time. The book of Revelation has an amazing picture of the reclaiming of the lease. We won't get into that in this particular sequence, but in our next sequence, we'll talk about when the lease is reclaimed. Welcome back. We're talking about the end from the beginning. And so far, we've seen some fascinating evidence for a reversal of Genesis in the book of Revelation. And what you see at the end of Revelation is what we see in the first of Genesis, paradise to paradise. In Genesis chapter 3, which is where our study is now, we see Adam losing dominion. But in Revelation, we see how Christ goes to take back the dominion, to gain it back. So you see a complete reversal of the dominion in the work of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
and uh, I want you to pay careful attention to it. I saw in the right hand of whom who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. In other words, uh, this had to be opened up by breaking a seal, and you could only read so far, and then you would break another seal and unroll it more and unroll it more and so forth. And so that's how uh, the scroll would be wound up. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or even look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now the consequences of an unopened scroll here had to be catastrophic because this is why John is weeping. He is weeping over the fact that this scroll is not being opened and something about the scroll not being opened means that there's a great deal of suffering on planet earth because the scroll remains locked. And uh, there's a search that goes out and in the earth under the earth, in heaven, below the earth, beneath the earth, all the three worlds are examined. The underworld, the surface of the earth with living people in, and heaven itself. Then there's not one person found worthy to open that book. So the Bible says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and beheld in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Now again, we're back to Hebrew idioms. And uh, it had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Isaiah talks about those seven spirits of God, and he identifies them. Uh, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So uh, the lamb that was slain was Jesus. And the lamb having these seven eyes means that he is perfect in wisdom. Uh, to have eyes it means he has the ability to see, so he can see through the nature of everything. So this is a, a lamb that has perfect wisdom, and he has great authority. So that's the reason for the seven horns. Anytime you see the number seven, it means fullness, completeness, nothing lacking. So that's kind of a bizarre-looking creature to have seven uh, horns because uh, most of the uh, animals in God's creation, the, the the bulls that have the horns, they have a pair of horns. And every now and then you get something that's got more uh, more than two, but most of the time there's some symmetry with it. But seven, you don't see, but it's because it's totally symbolic. And that means then that the horns are symbolic of authority. Remember, when Samuel the prophet came to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel, he brought a horn of anointing oil, and the horn was a symbol of divine acceptance, divine authority to be king. And that's what we see here. This uh, uh, seven horns are fullness of authority. He has a right to be the king. And so uh, we see that the Lord takes this scroll. And uh, witnesses are here. Now now look at this. This is the witnesses. They sang a new song after he took the, the scroll. 
And verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and you've redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Think about that for a minute now. Uh, that the nations of the earth, which have never yet heard the gospel, there will be people come out of those nations who will know Christ. So they are going to get the gospel. This is going to happen. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Why are we going to reign? Because he prevailed to open the scroll. If he hadn't prevailed to open the scroll, then we're not reigning on earth. So his opening of the scroll has to do with his ability to reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was ten thousands times ten thousands, and thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, all of them in unison, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Every class of being, even fish in the sea, even the animals in the earth, every class of being is giving praise to the Lamb and glorifying him for what he has done. Uh, these living creatures that are uh, the cherubs that are in heaven that have these amazing faces. One of them has the face of a man. Uh, I believe that's symbolic of the Messiah. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is about the humanity of Jesus, how Jesus became a man. The biological behind-the-scenes look at how the virgin birth took place is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. You don't see it in Matthew, don't see it in Mark or John, but you see it in detail in the Gospel of Luke because the theme of Luke's Gospel is the perfect man. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the king of Israel, and uh, that's the symbol of the lion. The face of the man is uh, the Gospel of Luke. The face of the lion represents the Gospel of Matthew, and that's the genealogy of Joseph, who had the right to be king had it not been for the curse of Jeremiah that came on David's offspring. So Jesus could not be king if he was Joseph's seed, but because he was adopted, he could step into the place to become the rightful king of Israel. He wasn't just king symbolically. He was the real son of David. He was the adopted son. And by the way, when Jesus was born, the most powerful man in the world was a Roman emperor named Augustus who was adopted. Adopted sons had legal rights and privileges. Then we see in the Gospel of Mark, no genealogy, but we, in fact, uh, Jesus is not even referred to as Lord till the very end of that Gospel because its theme is not his Lordship. The theme is Jesus the servant. So that's the ox. The ox is the beast of burden, lives his whole life in serving, pulling a plow, and then he gets butchered. And at the end of his life, uh, they use every part of his body for uh, food and for leather and so forth. So poor ox, but that's what Jesus was for us. He was our servant. And then the eagle is the face of the resurrection. And so we have in John's gospel, the picture of the resurrected son of God, the word of God made flesh. We see him in a totally different light in John's gospel. That's the reason 
you see these four created beings before the throne of God who say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now we've got 24 elders which represent all of the righteous people of the ages. Then we have all the righteous people here of the ages. Then we have the fish of the sea. We've got everybody and the angels of heaven. Everybody is witnessing to the fact that this lamb is worthy he is justified. He is in a legal position to now take back planet Earth. And that's what the scroll is all about. It's the title deed to planet Earth. And God doesn't just do this because He wants to do it, but the king, the lamb, had to be tested. He went through the test. He was tempted for 40 days and he passed the test with flying colors, and then he lived sinlessly and died on a cross, so he's worthy to redeem the earth. Now let's take a look at Revelation chapter 19. Now it's one thing for him to be legally just in taking the earth. It's another thing for him to have the ability to take the earth. And so this is what we see in Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except him, uh, he himself. Now listen, that means that on his head, these crowns, there's not any jurisdiction on earth that he is not Lord over. When he rises from the dead and appears to the disciples in Galilee in Matthew 28, and he said, all power on heaven and earth is given to me. He said, therefore, go and make disciples. He said, I don't care what any other government says. I don't care if they tell you it's illegal. You go make disciples. I'm the one who has the power. They're not really in power. They may say they have power, but they're not operating under me. I'm the one who has the power. And I'm telling you, go preach the gospel. That's what is happening. Now he is fully exercising that power. All right? He who sat on the horse was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. Why does he have to make war? Because there are people on the earth who refuse to submit to his rule. He will not make war on them until they have been examined and they will be judged and they, their works will be made clear and it will be known where they stand and why they're wrong. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, meaning that he had died and was raised from the dead. His name is called the Word of God. Now let's look at verse 19, because after he does all of these things, it says, I saw the beast, which is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now this is fascinating to me, because it literally says that the armies of earth will go to Israel, not just to destroy Israel, but they are going to fight Jesus, and they know he's going to be there. And they're going to fight him anyway. That's how brazen they have become. And they are in deep trouble. Now, the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow. So he is able to take possession. Now I'm going to stop here before we go to Satan, and I want to turn you to the book of Jude, Jesus' little brother. And Jude prophesies, and Enoch, uh, or Jude actually quotes Enoch who prophesied in verse 14, 15. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Here's what that means. Jesus will not do this alone. He will bring us with him because it's for our benefit that this is made right. In other words, he is involving the ones to whom God gave the dominion in the beginning. When God said, let man have dominion in Genesis 1.26, that dominion was extended to those that were right and righteous. And since we are righteous, we have a right to come with Jesus and seize that dominion. And this is fascinating. We're coming even though we've had sins, but we're cleansed by His blood. And we have a right to exercise that dominion and power because of what He's done. Now, how did He get it? Well, I want to show you. It's from the book of Colossians chapter 2, and this is where and how He won it. Colossians 2.13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You know, Satan was so fixated on killing the Messiah. He started from the very moment Jesus was born. He wanted to use King Herod to kill the babies in Bethlehem thinking that they would get to Jesus, who might still be there. He missed. He tried to kill him in Nazareth when they were going to throw him off the brow of a hill, tried to kill him on the Sea of Galilee in storms, tried to kill him with demon-possessed people who had incredible strength. Uh, Jesus cast the devils out of those people. They tried to kill him at the temple, but he hid himself from them. Uh, even when they came to get him, John 18 describes this, and uh, they came to Gethsemane. He said, whom seek ye? They said, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Boom. They went backward and fell on their faces. And that was not some little formal exercise they did before they captured people. They couldn't get up. He let them know you're fighting against Almighty God. They're so blinded, so deceived that they get back and come at him again anyway. Peter reaches up and cuts off the ear of one of the guys, and Jesus heals the man's ear. And in the face of all that, they're still so blinded that they're going to crucify him. So when you tell me that people in the book of Revelation are going to come against Messiah and fight against Jesus, 
That's a ridiculous idea, but they will do it. They will know that he's coming, and they will try to fight against his rule anyway. In the tribulation, the seven years, and especially in the last half, ungodly people will be very much aware that their judgments are coming from Jesus, the Lamb of God. And they'll be very much aware of His presence and very determined to stand against Him. They will fail. They will fail. When did Satan lose it all? He lost it all by killing Jesus. He was so intent upon killing Him, he finally got to do it, not realizing that bringing death on the Messiah was his own undoing. That's where Jesus beat him. Now God raised him from the dead, but it was his shed blood that caused Satan to lose his jurisdiction over people. So why then are we still dealing with the devil today? It is because the lease has a time frame. It isn't up yet. I do believe it'll be up soon. And when it's up, you can bet on one thing. Jesus will respond and take his place as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I hope you've enjoyed this study. I hope you'll go back and mark these scriptures in your Bible, read them, meditate them. This would be stuff you could feed on for months and months because it's so rich. What he's done for us is simply amazing. Thank you for watching. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign? down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below or going to myfaithroots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.